designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 10. So welcome back to another episode. This week, I'm really excited to have Patricia Ofori on the show. She is a real estate entrepreneur who I met at a small developers event in Baltimore. And I did a double take when I met her because she was one of the few young black women in the room. And when I found out that she was a real estate agent and also a small time developer, I was thrilled because I just typically don't meet that many young black women who are in the field and actually doing the work and have projects under their belt. It's always helpful to see someone who looks like you doing something that you want to do. And so this week's quote is by Marion Wright Edelman. And she says, you can't be what you can't see. And while, yeah, there is more nuance to it than that, the fact of being able to see someone who looks like you doing things that you want to do really make an impact. And so that is something that I felt when I met Trish, particularly because I do have such a love for existing and historic buildings and renovating them sustainably, but I've always done it from the architecture side. So meeting a young Black woman who's doing it from the real estate broker and developer side was really exciting to me. If you're an American and you've traveled overseas or something and you're surrounded by people who don't speak the language and then you hear an American accent or you see an American, you know, it's that, that same kind of excitement. There, there was this moment of excitement because of recognition. From that, Trish and I stayed in touch and we've gone out to lunch a couple of times and we've really just grown in our friendship over the years. And it's been really great hearing more about the work that she's doing and seeing the work that she's doing and seeing how she's really trying to help people. Her company is called Ofori and Co. And, and she's been doing a lot of really great educational videos over on Instagram Live and really helping to 
demystify the real estate and flipping process, which has been really fun to see. And so as always, I'll post links to everything that we talk about in the show notes. And um, just a reminder that you can follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And to get to the show notes, just click the detail button on the podcast guide. Patricia, I call her Trish, is a wealth of information on the process. And I know a lot of times architects and other first-time developers, small developers, real estate, or people trying to get into real estate get very nervous about how to do it and how to find the funding to do it. And so Trish is really great at helping to, to, at helping to demystify that process. And so just to, just to tell you a little bit more about how amazing Trish is, let me go ahead and get into her bio. So Patricia Ofori is a real estate entrepreneur who uses physical spaces to foster community, creativity, and collaboration. Her boutique firm, Ofori & Co., specializes in multi-unit development and single-family home renovations. As an agent, Patricia has sold over 200 homes, primarily in the D.C. area, uh, which has a very competitive market, but she's also personally bought, rehabbed, and sold over a dozen properties. Her design philosophy is to honor a neighborhood's aesthetic and heritage while curating contemporary and functional spaces. As a Baltimore, Maryland-based investor, she uses her wealth of real estate knowledge to host events that encourage camaraderie, sustainability, and homeownership. So there are so many really great intersections that I'm excited for us to get into. And so without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Patricia Ofori. Thanks for jumping on the show. Um, I remember when we met a couple years ago and how in awe I was to meet you because you were so young <laughs> and uh, to be a young black woman who's actually doing development, doing deals in Baltimore. I was in awe and impressed and so excited to uh, meet you and I'm glad we've stayed in touch over all these years. So why don't we take a step back and tell me a little bit about what got you into development? Okay, cool. So thanks so much for having me on. Um, today. I really appreciate it. And the time flies. I think it was maybe almost two and a half, probably three years ago. So the, so the time flies. My introduction into development or doing deals really started when I was 25. So I bought my first house at 25 in Washington, D.C. I paid $100,000 for the property and at that time, that property, I had showed it to a client of mine. Um, I sell real estate as well. And so I showed it to a client of mine. And I think that house was on the market for maybe like 256 days. Nobody nobody okay. wanted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in Washington, D.C., on Sheriff Road in Northeast, it needed a little bit of work. I think I did like paint, carpet. Um, I eventually did the kitchen, you know, very minor, very minor stuff. I think mm-hmm. I might have spent when I first moved in, maybe $5,000 to get it up and going. But even just with that project and the houses that I bought, after, I never liked anybody else's design. So if you <laughs> want to ask me like what, what got me into the de- development, I, I never really liked anybody else's design. And I always, I've sold maybe 200 houses and I bought Personally, maybe I bought maybe 14 to 15 units, um, all different types of different types of projects. But every single every single project that I've done, I've always done some type of renovation, upgrade, something like that. So I I think a part of it is just really 
my urge to create a space that that I like or create a space and how and how I see it. And then I would say that the second thing is um, I've always just from growing up, um, I always was really active in community stuff. So my mom had me in church, in the church choir, mm-hmm. in Girl Scouts, in um, youth NAACP, um, in summer camp. I was, a, I was dancing. I was a gymnast. I played basketball. I played tennis. So I always was involved in community stuff. And so uh, the, the second thing that got me really into investing into real estate and doing development, I grew up in a black, really like a black and, and Spanish neighborhood, a black and Puerto Rican kind of neighborhood. And there always was some type of initiative on how we can make the cities better, how we can make the neighborhoods better. And I grew up in a, in a really small town. I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. so when I came to D.C. to go to school, um, and I was I, I was in D.C. for about 12, 12 and a half, 13 years. I just seen so many progressive people. And there was at the time D.C. is developed now as we uh, 2020. Right. You know? <laughs> right. D.C. is D.C. Yeah. 2000 is a very different beast. <laughs> yeah. D- yeah. D- yeah. So D.C. Of, 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 of 2000 is completely different now. But mm-hmm. when I got into D.C. and I and I bought my house east of the river. And I was doing a lot of work east of the river. People are familiar with D.C. They'll know kind of where east of the river is. It's what they were calling the last frontier and the last place to be developed. But um, there just was so much progressive energy around change and, and how we were going to do it and arts and culture and, you know, how black people needed to have, you know, stake in some of the things that were going on. So I had already had the community piece and then I had seen people kind of taking it to a different level and bringing a different type of excitement around it. And so I just was like, and, and DC also was a town where people were, you know, if they want to do something, you know, people could really actualize it and do it. And so I think I was just excited about that. I was excited about making some of the change that, that I thought, you know, would be cool um, and would be helpful. And also, you know, would be tailored towards people that look like me around my age group and, and that type of stuff, because, there were a lot of things that were going on, but it was kind of kind of corny. Right. You know, right. When you first got into development, how many or did you have experiences where people weren't taking you seriously because like, oh, OK, who's this young black woman? What's she doing trying to buy, sell, flip, renovate houses? Do you have any of that? That's a tough question because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of things now where it's like this, this you know, people are not going to respect you as a woman or people aren't going to respect you as being black or people aren't going to respect you, you know, because of how you look. And I'm sure, you know, that type of stuff, that type of stuff does happen. But I would say one thing about me is I always look at the glass kind of half full, I think it is opposed to half empty. So for me, I just kind of focus on the project. And I think there's people around you that want to do the project or want to do the work with you. I mean, one time I had a guy, you know, say to me, he knows a lot of people or, or he, you know, he doesn't usually like to work for women or something like that. But, but the, I just was, you know, for me, I was like, one, you don't work for me. So, you know, you right. work for yourself. You're, you're doing a, you're doing a, you're doing a job for yourself. And then the second thing was, I mean, I just didn't work with him on the next deal. Right. But to, to be honest, I would say, you know, anytime I go into a project or space, I'm, I'm very serious. And I'm like, I'm I'm always thinking about the finish line. It's like a, a basic thing in sales is ABC always be closing. So once I get a project started, I'm always thinking about 
the finish line. And I think people just kind of feel that energy. And so they see the end product or, you know, once they work with me, they kind of see how their projects turned out. And so I, I think real true craftsmen and people that really enjoy their job, they like to work with people that are going to turn out a good result. So I think some of the things, the you know, being a woman, being black, being young, looking a certain way, I, I think that weeds out you know, people that are more caught up in a whole bunch of nonsense, you know, right. and I think you just start to work with people that are really about doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause at, at the end of the day, it's going to be the the projects that are going to sell. I mean, that's the point. I like the, the always be closing and the, the mantra that, listen, we're here to do a job to make it go forward. And so as you've been doing more development and trying to focus or even, I guess, uh, provide different resources or products for people who look like us. What are some different things that you've noticed in terms of taste between younger folks and older folks and when you're trying to develop different things or as you're putting together the project, are there different things that you're looking for depending upon who your target market is? I think there's a difference between flipping houses and development, right? So um, when I was in DC and even my first year in Baltimore and even some now, I was buying houses, renovating them, and putting them back on the market for resale. So I would say that process is really knowing what the market wants and delivering upon that. So I think that's kind of separate than development. I think one of the projects that I can reference is my project in Mount Vernon. And so that's a three-unit building, um, and the bottom floor is a commercial space. And I knew that I wanted to give another Black business an opportunity to have that space. And that really just came from my network. You know, I, I reached out to, if you're familiar with Nubian Human, they have a location in Washington, D.C. And I just had a relationship uh, with Anika because I had done some things in the past. I had put on like some community happy hours at her space in D.C., and I, I kind of like scanned my head, you know, who has a concept that I think can be sustainable in this neighborhood that would bring value to this neighborhood and will also allow me to continue to develop um, and not really have to worry about the sustainability of the tenant. And so she came across me and I, I simply just just kind of just kind of reached out to her. And we did a little bit more than white box the space. If you're in commercial real estate, you know, white box is just delivering just a basic unit for a commercial tenant and they kind of do the outfitting. So we we did like her lights and stuff like that. But I really respected her taste and her style. So we gave her, we painted, we did some lights, put her light picture that we let her pick that. But in terms of how she kind of designed the space, you know, she really kind of did that on her own. And even we had an issue with the floors and we had to replace the floors. And I was like, what type of floors, what color, what kind of grout? Because I like her taste. And for me, I'm the type of person where it's like, let the artist be the artist. Like if I hire somebody, if I'm doing something, I want to see what they're going to create. If I'm going to create it, then I'm going to create it. But if I'm going to give it to you, I want to see what you're going to create. And it just gave me some ideas and it also opens me up on different ways to think. So, you know, I was able to bring her to space for below market, but that was because my numbers were strong going into the deal. And they always say, when you're in real estate, you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. So if you want to give an affordable project or bring something to the market for right. people you want to offer to this price, then you need to kind of work that into your numbers before you buy the deal. Gotcha. When you're looking at like existing buildings or historic buildings versus new construction, do you have a preference on one way or the other? Or do you like doing one more so than the other? I would say I haven't done new construction, ground up construction yet. Okay. I started a nonprofit maybe four months ago, five months ago, called Make Space. And 
I started that one because I wanted to do more. And we were doing like at, at the building where I'm at in Mount Vernon and Nubian Humanist, we were already starting to do um, before COVID hit. So we were starting to do like some art events. We were starting mm-hmm. to do just some different events that I thought was that I thought was cool. But for me, I was spending like I was spending like five, six hundred dollars an event, which maybe that's not a lot for some people, but I wasn't making any money from it. You right, know? right. So, <laughs> so I was like, there has to be a more sustainable way to to do this. And so I started learning a little bit more about the nonprofit route and how people were getting project mm-hmm. funding. And like I said, it's 2020 now. So there's big initiatives on like social impact and impact investing and arts and culture. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to start a nonprofit and what we're focusing on is live workspaces. You know, one, I think live workspaces bring a lot to the neighborhood. And also if somebody buys a building and they have their business in there and it's also where they work and they have another unit where they rent out, they cut their costs, they're able to increase their capacity on what they can do. And I think it also activates neighborhoods in ways that maybe just commercial or just residential can't do. For sure. And it's a concept that people are doing in different cities, but there's not a lot of data on it. There, it hasn't been around long enough for us to really evaluate it properly. But I wanted to do live workspaces for artists and creative entrepreneurs. And so I actually was looking at some lots. Um, I put a bit on, actually, I put a bit on five lots, three in Reservoir Hill, two in the Barclay neighborhood. The ones in Reservoir Hill, I just found out we're not going to be able to get those. And then the ones in Barclay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get those either, but, but, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm open to new construction, but then I also visited today. Uh, it's like five to 6,000 square foot. They call it a mansion um, mm-hmm. house in Harlem park that has its own courtyard. And then in the back, it has a church. Huh. So that's a project that I'm like, you know what, you know, and I, I'm big on home ownership, but sometimes like with that type of building, neighborhoods have to be ready for condos. So I would think that might be a building where I make almost like micro live workspace for for artists and entrepreneurs. And I, I'll be able to, you know, do one bedroom for maybe like six hundred, six hundred and fifty dollars. And then the church, you know, and I <laughs> I don't want to be sacrilegious, but we would probably turn the church into like some type of like restaurant or cafe or, or right. something cool that would activate the neighborhood and people from the neighborhood would use. So. That's just a project I've seen today and, you know, I'll be yeah. reaching out to the community association, but I'm excited to do just different types of project, new construction or, um, or, you know, building, you know, working with the, the structure of the building. Yeah, that's awesome. Cause it's one of those things where like, I know a lot live workspaces historically have been like shop owners where it's, you know, ground floor shop residents upstairs, but it's the idea of tailoring it towards artists, I think is really awesome. And I think that's even kind of yeah. like the the prompt that most architecture students get in school and they love it. And it's like, yes, live workspace for artists. Like the, the idea is so ripe and ready for like to come to life. So I love that you're working on some potential projects for that. Yeah. And then for the, the church, I think it's interesting because a lot of churches are struggling with the fact that people aren't going to church anymore. Um, yeah. Aside from COVID, you know, congregations were going down and a lot of churches are now embracing digital live streams, which I think is great, but being able to actually uh, reuse the physical church building for another type of congregation, be it, you know, retail, uh, retail or food or whatever, still bringing people together back into the building. I think that's, that's really interesting. That sounds really and fun. I, <laughs> and, I, and I only say sacrilegious, I'm not going to say the name, but there's a, you know, a place in, in Baltimore and they turned a church into a brewery. Yep. And if, and if, 
and a friend of mine goes, don't you think this is a little sacrilegious? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but it's cool. You know, right. the ceilings are super high. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's huge. And it's like, it's, it's a use of the space that's getting more people into the building, which stopped going. So it's like, I think that's, that's a conversation that I know a lot of uh, congregations are having, particularly what do we do with the building? People don't want to go to church, but they want to, they want right. to drink alcohol. Right. <laughs> yeah i know there's also a number of churches who are kind of grappling with the their real estate or trying to get into like multifamily or affordable housing because like we have all this land let's develop it and do something since you know tithing is going down and all that stuff so then one of the things that i'm always fascinated by is like fascinated and impressed by like you're like oh this is a deal this is how it works the financing piece of it and so i love that you are uh, you started a platform and started using um, instagram and all that to really educate people more on how to do the process because i think that's the piece that scares a lot of people out of development it's like ooh, what how do I do this? I don't have any money, you know, or like it's the, the financial piece of it is I think what is often scary. Yeah. So do you mind talking a little bit about what you're doing on uh, Instagram live and the platform that you're creating over there? Yeah, I would say two different things. So in order to answer your first question to get into a deal, I know there's a, like, there are a lot of things, a lot of things that I see on Instagram and social media especially the, the podcast and the, the Instagram lives and that, or, or even just the marketing behind kind of real estate mm-hmm. in to the black community, there is this big push on like how to get into a deal with no money down or how to get into a deal, just get into a deal. Like you can make a lot of money just getting into a deal. And that's not really been my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my experience is that it's been a, a slow grinding, meticulous, learn on the job, make mistakes on the job, pick yourself back up type of type of journey and type of field. But I would say the two things you need to to do to get into real estate development, you know, is you need the resources, you need to have the context with the team um, of people that are going to help the deal get off the ground. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with with the Instagram live and I did a crowdcast uh, book talk with the author, just really meeting different professionals that are on the real estate team and just, and, and that are also doing different aspects. I think with the, with the IG live, I had a developer that I, that I work with and I know his story cause I've been working on him for maybe seven, eight years. And it's like, I've seen him, you know, have some great success. But I also see the type of projects that he does and I see the type of money that he shells out and I, I see it from the from the inside out. So, you know, having people like that, I also had a builder. And again, I, I've, I've known him for maybe four years or something like that, but I kind of seen his process. I've, you know, met some of the guys that he that he invests with and that type of stuff. So I think just getting people exposure to who's on the team, who are some of the people that are in the network, who are some of the people that you call on when you have questions and then really understanding their journey on how they got started. Some people have family, they have, they have family that's in the business and they get started that way. Um, some people really, you know, started from nothing and, and kind of worked their way up and kind of network and, and did different things. But I think really understanding who's on the team, mm-hmm. understanding what everyone does 
and that understanding who you need to call to get projects done is what I'm trying to educate people on on those platforms. Yeah, and I've been loving the different information that you've been putting out because it really is giving a, an inside look and behind the scenes of how things come together. And it's yeah. it's refreshing to hear it from someone who's actually doing it and has yeah. a network. So it's one of the things that's often makes me nervous on Instagram is, you know, seeing seeing the people who are like, oh, I invest in real estate. And they're like in front of their Lamborghini throwing you know, <laughs> hundreds. And it's like, listen, that doesn't seem very real. <laughs> it's like they're on, yeah. they're on a scene. They're on a right. scene. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not their car, not their money kind of thing. I love the fact that then you're like not only doing the work, you're also educating the people to help them, you know, learn more about the process to potentially do the work themselves as well. Are there any things that you wish people knew about development or really, or like kind of lessons learned that you're just like, uh, it drives me nuts when people make this assumption or I wish more people knew X, Y, or Z? Well, first I, first I would say I'm probably not a, a developer in a, in a traditional sense. For example, my main goal is to, is to create what I think needs to be created or what I hear people that are in my network kind of talking about. And it's like, I, since I'm in the real estate field, I'm like, okay, well, we've been talking about this for a while. Let me use my skill set to see if I can try to get it done or see if I can start to be some type of catalyst to, to, to even give people an example sometimes because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, getting a, I'm not that young. I'm getting a little older now. I just turned 34. And so oh, I, baby. I know, oh. I know, I know. Oh. I know, but well, what I what I I'm only saying that to say <laughs> is that when I was in my twenties, it was like like tunnel vision. But now yeah. I would say I have pe- people in their twenties that are kind of asking me questions and like picking my brain, and I'm and I I think it's cool that they see me and I look like them, I dress like them, and I talk like yeah. them. But they're like, hey, I can do this type of stuff too. So I would say. I think that's pretty cool. But what I want people to know, another thing is that people are always talking about with real estate, especially targeted towards black people is like, you can make a lot of money, you can get rich, you can, and even me, I love to make money, but I I like to create, you know, Mm -hmm. so anybody that likes to make cups or likes to make this, it's, it's not, it's not so much the process. Real estate is a tool and the money is the, is the, the result of, of the work, but it's also what I really enjoy is being able to create something that I had in my mind and make that come to life. And so what I want people to know in real estate, because I also, even just starting the nonprofit and kind of getting into this world, I'm talking to people and I realize there's a lot of business owners, black business owners that, that there's some type of like dissonance between making money. It's almost like a, like a bad word. But for me, what I want people to realize is that real estate is a tool that you can use to to expand your capacity. It's a tool that you could use to be able to have a legacy. It's a tool that you can use to not be controlled as much. You know, it's not it's not about making all this money because anybody that really knows anything about making money is that they know money is compounded. In order to make money and to really have wealth, that comes over years. Right. And it's and if you even if they show you a, a twenty thousand dollar check that somebody made or say fifty thousand dollar check somebody made from a flip, one anybody that really knows you, you know that that money is going to be taxed at thirty to forty percent. So that's so that's half of the money right there. Right. And then it's like if you don't put that money back into another vehicle, then with inflation the, the money loses value. And it, it I mean what are you going to do with it? Right. So for me, I, I want people to to really 
Black people to really understand that that real estate is a tool that you can use to really take some ownership back into some of these neighborhoods. And then you don't have to, we don't always have to ask for permission. If you own real estate, the government's still going to get their money and stuff like that. But the biggest thing is when you don't have to ask for permission and you can kind of control, you know, your environment a little more, it just gives you a peace of mind. You can also use it as a resource to catapult you into different things. Yeah, that's huge. Like site control and being able to have ownership is huge. And it's actually one of the things that even as an architect, when we're talking to potential clients, we'll work with a lot of different nonprofits or different people who have great ideas. But it's like, but do you have site control? Because if you don't have site control, then there's only so much of a conversation we can have because we still need to, you don't have, you know, you don't have permission. You don't have authority to do anything on that site yet. So that's right. a really good point about being able to have that control. So on the realtor side, you've sold about 200 homes and then you've also bought 14 to 15 properties over the course of your career so far, which by the way, I know you say you feel old, but listen, you're younger than me. You're adorable. <laughs> like, <laughs> and also I feel like it's still, I know so many people who like feel like they're, they're not allowed to start doing the work that you've been doing until they're older. You know, like they're like, Oh, I, I don't have enough experience yet. Or I don't know. Like, I don't know, there's like this invisible limiting belief that you have to have gray hairs before you can start doing the real yeah, estate. Yeah. And so while I do have some grays, we're gonna that <laughs> <laughs> we all do. That's <laughs> an age. <laughs> It'll age you. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And so then what is it like, I guess, since you're, you've been on both the, the selling of the home and also the creating of the house that then becomes the home? What is it like selling the property and ha- having people move in and kind of seeing that exchange? of like you're creating housing for people what is that like it's cool you know i'm always very i've always been a person that's been very like critical of my own work and so i would say after every project that i've done i've always been like on the next one i want to do this or i want to do that or this can be better i'm i'm just always very critical and i'm always interested in what the you know what people have to say about the project um, and I, I, I like critical feedback. I think most people, you know, they say it's nice and stuff like that, but I really do value when people are, are a little bit more critical with the work because I think that helps me to improve. But starting the process and seeing people move in, I think it's cool. And I think it's also cool to see what type of people you attract. Right. You know, that says a lot about the work as well you know if you're when you put a house on the on the market and you have on the sales market and you have 10 offers or 15 offers you're like wow a lot of people are interested in this product Mm -hmm. you know but if if you put something on the market and it doesn't sell then nobody really likes it (laughs) (laughs) you know and and, and the same thing with renting space that means You know, because sometimes location, location is what is going to is going to drive people. And that's one thing too. location mm-hmm. is, a, is a big thing. But it's also it's also the product that you're delivering. So I think seeing who is also in align, alignment with with my vision, I think it's great. As you're thinking about legacy and kind of the buildings that you're renovated and knowing that they used to be something else, you've created them into something more and then, you know, they'll be renovated again eventually and all that how much do you think about legacy and kind of what will be left behind how much do i think about legacy so i think about legacy but not so much in maybe the projects that i'm rehabbing and then reselling i always want to deliver something that's quality and i hope that you know it stands the the test of time but once it's 
done and it and it's kind of out my out my hands then you know i i just kind of move on to the next thing but i would say with some of the stuff that's buying hold you know i hope to get more into just somewhat larger apartment complex mm-hmm. not not super large but anywhere from like eight to 12 units a size, some something in six to 12 units I, I would like to start working on projects of that size and for those buildings with legacy I, I don't know because i don't have any kids now and i'm people are always like okay well my kids will want to do this or they want to do that but these kids have their own minds so you might have right. kids i could have a kid and they don't not even interested in real estate but what i what i will say about the about the legacy part is that it's not so much you know my personal legacy but i want to i i want the stuff that i'm doing to really be a catalyst for change in the neighborhood and to really have a a positive impact i don't want to bring someone if it's a commercial space i don't want to bring mm-hmm. a business just to bring a business you know i don't want to you know just just put something on the market just to put it like you know i want to bring something to the market that people are going to enjoy the people the residents in the neighborhood are going to benefit from and that also you know inspires other people in the neighborhood you know to do some stuff with their building you know what we have on Reed Street there's been I'm just on our block the 200 block in the past year we've had maybe four new sales on our block and we have maybe like 25 houses but four new sales on our block two one major renovation that's on the corner um another small renovation somebody else bought something across the street from me and then there's a building on the corner that's for sales and then actually the building across the street from me that guy's been working on it as well and it does it, it does inspire people when you see people out you know growing up when you see people like working on the yard and doing the yard you like I got to get my yard together, you know, to say this, you know, (laughs) I I, I would say, you know, bringing something to the neighborhood that brings some people some joy, some happiness, and that also clue to what's to to what's going on and make it better. I would say those are those are some of the things I'm thinking about right now for Legacy. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. 
I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.